Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 244. No more time to dance. Before I start, let me briefly remind you that I'm a proud member of the Agora Podcast Network, a smorgasbord of independent podcasters. To find out more, go to agorapodcastnetwork.com. And then, last week I mentioned Bill the Pony. I am ashamed. This was a Lord of the Rings reference, of course, and Ed reminded me on Twitter that Bill, of course, makes it back, and they meet him in Bree on the way. I had forgotten. I cannot live with this shame. But then I revived, because I happened to come into contact with somebody on Twitter again who has had the laudable, if slightly eccentric, idea of telling the story of historical events to their cat on a video. There is more than one benefit to this approach. If you like cats, you get to see a very nice example of one, and, given that cats can be impatient of historical stories, you get a nice, succinct rendition. So, we decided that this would be a good opportunity for a tie-up. To hear the version of Catherine Howard's story told in the presence of a cat, go to Twitter and go to at history underscore with underscore cats. That is, again, at history, which is S-T-R-Y, history without the vowels, underscore with underscore cats. The address will be on my website, which might in fact be easier. Last time then, we heard about Catherine Howard's youth, and we heard also that far from being a talentless airhead, as she has been described by one historian, which is mean, she had started to make a pretty good fist of being queen. I also remarked that really, despite her past, it's not clear that Catherine was really in terrible danger. It really wasn't in anybody's interest to expose her, or at least none of those who knew her in the past doesn't mean that she was away and clear. It wasn't that easy. After all, some of her past servants or contacts might well be dangerous. 
It seems clear that although the Dowager Duchess liked Francis Derham, for example, he really was a potential problem. He was volatile, he was possessive, he was besotted. But also, Catherine's past servants could not just be ignored. It was pretty much a duty and social requirement to look after your servants in Tudor days. Many would absolutely expect to find a job in her new royal household, so she couldn't just cut and run. So, although there was no need to panic, nor could the situation be ignored. This week, we're going to hear about what she does and how it turns out, and I have some help from the Crowther players featuring Izzy Crowther as Catherine, Will Moore as Deerham, and Henry Crowther as Cranmer, and heavily disguised also as another character. See if you can spot him. To decide what to do, Catherine went to the Dowager Duchess and the Countess of Bridgewater. The results have been condemned as utterly potty, because many of her old servants were indeed given jobs in Catherine's new household. But more recently, folks have been much less critical. They've pointed out, as we've said, that it would be most unusual and indeed suspicious for Catherine not to take servants and household members with her. It would be most untudor. And actually, in some cases, it might actually be more dangerous to pass people over than it was to employ them. They might take umbrage. They might seek revenge. And finally, it's also clear that the Dowager Duchess and the Countess looked at each case one by one, and they took their time. It wasn't just a whole-scale jamboree. The response varied according to the person. Decisions were carefully thought through. So, in fact, they did pass over many of the more dangerous folks or people they thought of as dangerous. Henry Mannix, for one. There was a lady called Joan Bulmer who wrote to ask for employment in a letter that could be read as including a veiled threat that she had exposed Catherine if she wasn't employed. And if so, her bluff was called by the swashbuckling Countess of Bridgewater since there's no evidence that she ever was employed. And then there was the servant, Mary Lascelles, who knew a lot and clearly disapproved of Catherine's behaviour and who was not employed in the household. Francis Derham himself stayed initially with the Dowager Duchess until he took himself off to Ireland, and it might well have been that he gave the Dowager Duchess certain assurances and papers which she kept before he was allowed to go. Nonetheless, more and more of Catherine's old associates were employed, even those such as Catherine Tilney. Now, Catherine had shared a bed with Catherine at Horsham. She'd shared a bed on at least one occasion where Derham had joined them, and she'd been forced to move, complaining afterwards of the noise associated with the ensuing canoodling. So she knew pretty much all there was to know. But then she was part of the Dowager Duchess's family, as well as Catherine being a person she'd spent her early teenage years with. How could Catherine turn Catherine Tilney aside without raising eyebrows? But it must have been a worry, a daily danger that the wrong word or look could bring disaster. And then... Francis Derham reappeared from Ireland and asked for employment. In the end, the Dowager Duchess and the Countess of Bridgewater thought that even he was best kept close, and so he joined Catherine's household. That he presented a danger was soon very clear. He'd lost none of his possessiveness, he believed himself entitled to special consideration, and he made no effort at all to hide it. His behaviour raised questions and caused resentment, because it went against all the rules and etiquette of the court. There was quite quickly a nice example. So, Derham took to lingering after dinner to chat with the Queen, as he might have done in days gone by and presuming on his relationship. But he wasn't in the informal atmosphere of home now. In the Queen's household, 
This was a privilege, a privilege accorded only to the members of the Queen's Council. So Durham hanging around was very odd behaviour. It stood out. It was noticed. So much so that one evening, one of the gentlemen ushers, a Mr Johns, decided he'd had enough of this uppity sort of stuff and this Durham chap needed to be taught a lesson. So when Durham did it again, he ostentatiously sent a messenger demanding to know whether Durham were part of the Queen's Council now. Durham hit straight back. Go to Mr Johns and tell him that I was of the Queen's Council before he knew her and shall be when she hath forgotten him. Durham, at very least, was a loose cannon. But never mind, even with Durham, nerve-wracking though that must have been, if Catherine behaved well, she'd probably be okay. Now, when she'd first joined the court in the household of Anne of Cleves, Catherine's attention had been attracted by a handsome young courtier called Thomas Culpepper. Culpepper was in his mid-twenties, probably 26-ish, and was the typical courtier. Good-looking, fashionable, athletic, brimming with self-confidence. There's no doubt that Culpepper was unashamedly promiscuous and had a fashionably large number of relationships. More seriously, a 17th century writer also alleged that Culpepper had been accused of rape and that the king himself had had to intervene to sweep it under the carpet. But there's absolutely no reference anywhere else to it and there's nothing contemporary. So it's far from clear the accusation is true and most historians conclude it probably isn't. Anyway, Catherine had noticed him. Culpepper had noticed her. And you know, there was a bit of flirtation. Could have led anywhere. In fact, Culpepper clearly expected to proceed with alacrity to the last of however many bases there are. In fact, I've never known. This is before she became embroiled with the king. But Catherine at this point, she seems to have been the cautious one and she'd rather held him at arm's length. So Culpepper had simply metaphorically shrugged his shoulders and maybe even literally shrugged his shoulders and moved on to a new conquest. This was a term of events which caused Catherine some pain and surprise, and she reportedly burst out in tears when she heard about it. But that, for the moment, was that. And then, on the 14th of April, 1541, Catherine, now Queen of course, Culpepper was surprised to be approached by one Henry Webb. Henry Webb was Queen Catherine's personal servant. Henry Webb asked him to follow him, and he was taken to an out-of-the-way corridor. And there he found, guess who? The Queen, waiting for him. Now, it's a time of year, April, when people at court gave each other presents, and so she gave him a cap as a present. We might assume this should be seen as perfectly normal and acceptable. But, since they're in an out-of-the-way corridor, and since Catherine begged him to hide it under his cloak, it was clearly not strictly within the spirit of the law of the custom, even if it might be within the letter. And clearly... Culpepper's flabber was a little ghasted. He recognised this as a bit of flirting and didn't quite know what to do with it. So he went for banter. Alas, madam, why did you not do this when you were a maid? It was an unsatisfactory, awkward, weird meeting. Neither party walked away satisfied. Catherine probably went away to share her pain with one Jane Rochford. We have met Jane before the wife of George Boleyn, Lord Rochford. She was accused, but probably not guilty, of shopping her husband about being guilty of incest with Anne Boleyn. Since George's execution, life had been tough for Jane, but she had won herself back into the Anne of Cleves's household. It was she, actually, who rather sarcastically pointed out to Anne that a gentle goodnight kiss was unlikely to be enough for her to conceive. Who knows quite what to think about Jane Rochford? She's been called all sorts of things and defended against same. 
but at very least she has to be a lover of gossip and intrigue, in which she would not be alone in Henry VIII's court, but maybe with less than the normal sense of self-preservation and judgment of where resided the line, of knowing when to stop. Which makes it unfortunate that she quickly became Queen Catherine's closest friend and confidant. Seems to have been her who suggested the affair of the cap. Anyway, for a while then, all went quiet, but Catherine had not forgotten and she could not resist. In June 1541, she heard that Culpepper was ill, so she sent her page boy with food for the patient and some messages might have passed between them. But there'd been no opportunity for a private meeting. Catherine was becoming obsessed. Culpepper worked in the king's privy chamber and therefore could not be free if he was on duty or if the king required his company. Catherine would also find it difficult to be alone. People were constantly with her. But as far as Henry was concerned, actually, there was a rather odd-sounding structure to her evening life and her life with the king. So when there were no public events in particular. So essentially, if the groom of the stool, Thomas Hennage, informed Catherine that the king would dine with her that evening, the meal usually served as a prelude to sex, which took place in her appointment Really sorry for that. Not sure quite why I'm apologising, just, you know, a little bit gross somehow. Anyway, the point is, she normally had a bit of warning if the king was coming over. There were chances for Catherine and Culpepper to talk, usually publicly, but for any kind of privacy, effort was needed, and effort meant suspicion. Notes were very probably passed between them, using Rochford as a go-between. One such letter survives. It's undated, so it could be from any time in 1541. But whenever it was from, it's too warm for any real misinterpretation. I have put it for your delight and delectation on the website, thehistoryofengland.co.uk. By the way, look on the resources right-hand navbar to the right when you're in the episode post itself. In fact, it was the progress to the north which gave the pair the opportunity that they craved. As they progressed with the king and the rest of the court towards Lincoln to go and meet those poor old rebels of the Pilgrimage of Grace... Jane would check out the structure of each house to see if there was a way that they could arrange a secret meeting between Culpepper and the Queen. Through the good offices of Jane, the odd, hurried meeting was indeed arranged, but the risk was quite nasty. So, for example, at the start of August, Catherine wrote a note to Culpepper. Now, obviously, she wanted to avoid addressing it. You know, Thomas Culpepper, Queen's secret lover, my husband's court, somewhere nobody will see as mid-gribble would possibly give the game away. So she left it blank and made sure there was no seal and sent it to Jane Rochford, who then snuck up to Culpepper and delivered the note. The trouble was that to get it back to the Queen, Rochford had to use one of the Queen's chamberers, in this case one Margaret Morton. It didn't help that Rochford seems to have been a bit unpopular, or at least she was with Morton. Lady Rochford gave the note to Margaret with a verbal reply to Catherine for her grace to keep it secret and not lay it abroad. Morton thought this was all a bit weird and suspicious, and she'd be very happy to catch Rochford out if she could. But then at Lincoln, a better opportunity presented itself. Catherine and Rochford's apartments happened to be close together, and you had to get through one to get to the other. And so, a plan was hatched. In the evening, the ladies of the household were dismissed as normal, and Jane and Catherine stayed together, apparently chatting and all of that in Jane's room. But in reality... They snuck out of Jane's room into a corridor from the other side of the room and there they waited because they'd left the door to that corridor unlocked. 
and they'd let Culpepper know that it was unlocked for a reason and that the reason was love. Disaster struck when a guard passed by and spotted the unlocked door and he opened it to see if there was an intruder in the forbidden corridor. Ah! The Queen of England and Lady Rochford died for cover. The guard missed them, though he did then lock the door. So when Catherine and Jane heard Culpepper arrive, it was something of a shock because he'd managed to pick the lock. Hart, no doubt racing and adrenaline pumping, the three of them rushed up the corridor and made their way into the Queen's lavatory, which doesn't sound great, but it happens to have been a reasonably large room. Jane strategically dozed in the corner while Catherine and Culpepper chatted. However, while they happily flirted, weirdness was noticed. Morton didn't go to bed and sleep. She felt honour bound to wait until she knew her mistress had gone to bed and wouldn't need anything. So she kept going to the Queen's room, but finding it empty and light coming from Jane Rochford's room. And she therefore assumed that Catherine was still up with Jane. Eventually, in the wee hours, she finally saw that the Queen had returned to her room and grumpily she rejoined Catherine Tilney, the chamberer with whom she shared a bed. As you probably know, most of the household would share beds, even kings and queens on occasion. So Tilney asked, Jesus, is the Queen a bed yet? And Morton answered, yes, even now, and went to bed. Essentially, the court was a closed community, where a lot of very nosy people were crammed into a very small space. Privacy was at a premium anyway in Tudor England. And to cap it all, the Queen was very rarely alone and always a centre of attention. Doing anything secret was dicing with death, literally. And yet, despite this, they kept going and all sorts of subterfuge went on to arrange secret meetings. The very following day, the Queen asked Catherine Tilney to go with her to meet with Jane and then asked Catherine to wait in an alcove above the room Jane and Catherine then went into. Then from that room... They slipped out from another exit unknown to meet with Culpepper while poor old Catherine Tilney waited for hours, wondering what on earth they were doing where they were and how the Blessed Queen could leave her for so long. At this particular meeting, Catherine told Culpepper that she loved him and Culpepper declared that he did love her again above all other creatures. So, more than his pet rabbit then, that's good. At this distance, it's impossible to really know what was going on in their heads and hearts. It's been suggested that Catherine was trying to get herself pregnant and so produce an heir passed off as the prince, but the pair don't rush into sex, actually, so that doesn't seem to be the reason. Culpepper's been accused of blackmailing Catherine, but there's no documentary evidence emerging anywhere to support the case. And if that had been the case, surely Catherine would have made that her defence when it came up later. If we want to ascribe dishonourable motives to Culpepper, it could be that he was positioning himself for some future marriage to Catherine if the fat and ageing king died before too long. Or maybe one or both of them were just thrilled by the intrigue. Or we just have to accept their good sense was swept away by passion. And that passion stood to give them away. As the progress crossed into Yorkshire, they stayed at the royal hunting ground of Hatfield Chase. You might have heard of Hatfield Chase. There was a great battle there many moons ago in 633. Remember Pender, the last great pagan Anglo-Saxon warrior king? I miss him. Anyway, it was at Hatfield that Culpepper happened to be visible from Catherine's window, and Margaret Morton, the chamberer, would later say that she saw her look out of the chamber window on Mr Culpepper after such sort that she thought there was love between them. The near misses mounted. One evening, Anthony Denny, deputy groom of the stool, was sent by the king to her, and when Denny arrived, he found that the queen's room was bolted from the inside. 
This is very unusual, but Denny decided that discretion was the soul of chivalry and decided not to mention it. Nonetheless, they survived the progress undiscovered and they arrived back at court in London where life could resume as normal. And life seemed set fair to resume in some glory, actually. Court, king and queen returned to Hampton Court Palace. At the All Souls Mass, Henry gave thanks to the Queen, who had brought him so much pleasure and done her job so well. And at the end of the Mass, the Queen and her ladies left the Royal Chapel, and Catherine would no doubt have been well pleased. I would not have seen the King picking up a letter to him from his Archbishop, Thomas Cranmer. To go back a step, while the progress was still in the North, an evangelical called John Lassell had been speaking to his sister, Mary Lassell, a name you may by now recognise, ex of the Dowager Duchess's household and companion of Catherine there. She had now got married and was called Mary Hall. You might remember, she's always been rather snarky. She'd told Mannix off for getting ideas above his station, for example. Now, the pair of them, John and Mary, were good, honest evangelicals and both were worried that Catherine's arrival to the glory of the traditionalist Howard clan spelled trouble for their cause but their conversation was actually more about putting bread on the table when John urged Mary to apply for a position with the Queen. God-fearing Mary said, No way! Not on your Nelly! Not for that free liver! At which point it all came out. Mary's horror at the life that Catherine had lived at Horsham of Henry Mannox, who, she said, knew of a privy mark on Catherine's person, of Francis Derham. Though it has to be said, Mary also said that she was sorry for the Queen, maybe a suggestion that Catherine was not entirely and solely responsible for the life that she had led. So, on All Souls Day, John Lassell arrived at Hampton Court Palace and he asked the Archbishop of Canterbury for an interview. And there he spilled the beans. Spilled the beans about Catherine's previous life, by the way. He knew nothing of any goings-on with Culpepper. This is purely pre-King. That same day, Cranmer was in council and he took said beans with him and he held them back until the main council was finished and the inner cabinet remained, the inner circle as it were, Edward Seymour, the Earl of Hertford and the Chancellor, the Earl of Arundel. Cranmer told them about the beans. He told them the news and they chewed it over. Now, Cranmer, as I have said, was a kindly man, though a kindly man in the academic tradition, so utterly cold, heartless and ruthless, red in tooth and claw when it came to the publishing of any papers or savaging any theories from competing academics, but in all other ways, a kindly man who did not want to cause Catherine any trouble, but he could not see a way through this without telling the king. Remember that knowing of a treasonable act and not disclosing it was itself treason, though fair dues wasn't yet clear that what Catherine had done was treason, but previous experience of the reign told them all that trying to brush it under the carpet simply wasn't an option. In the past, Cranmer has been accused of following a Protestant agenda here, of removing the Queen because she was a Howard, but their good relationship between Cranmer and Catherine, her lack of any religious bias, and the nature of the situation means it's really not that likely. And it's certainly, you don't need it to explain what happens next. So, how to tell Henry? Not an attractive question. Maybe, maybe casually slip it into conversation. Hey, Henry, how was York? Couple of things. Uh, need to appoint a new bish. Uh, embassy arrived from France. Uh, your wife lied to you and had loads of sex before you met her. Oh, hope the All Souls Mass went well, though I really don't think we should be doing masses anymore these days. OK, that's all for now. Bye. It was a poser and no mistake. 
Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Back to the All Souls Mass then. The Queen and her entourage had left, as we'd said, compliments all over, but Henry found a letter left for him in the chapel from the Archbishop, from Cranmer. Outside somewhere, maybe Cranmer, Seymour and Arundel were crouching behind a buttress, waiting for the howls. But it never happened. Henry just didn't believe it. Maybe he didn't want to believe it, or maybe he hoped against hope it wasn't true, but there was no explosion. Instead, there must be an investigation, he said, because he could not believe it till the certainty was known. Which seems fair. Four confidential councillors were appointed to carry out said investigation. The new Privy Seal, Fitzwilliam, Lord Russell, the Lord Admiral, Anthony Brown, Master of the Horse, and the King's personal secretary, Thomas Rottersley. The Queen was not to know, and indeed the Queen was in her chambers, all unaware that this was going on. Grim-faced, the King's most senior councillors left his presence to find out the truth, and incidentally their handwritten notes of their interrogations still survive. Fitzwilliam it was who took the Lascelles, first quizzing John Lascelles, who must himself have been pretty nervous. If his sister turned out to be wrong, it would not go well for them. There would be very familiar-looking entrails all over the place. And then Mary and her husband were visited a couple of days later by a bunch of hunters, who turned out to be Fitzwilliam and friends, cunningly disguised. It took Cranmer and Rottersley three days to track Mannix down, and so it wasn't until the 5th of November 1541 that they had interrogated him, the kindly archbishop and the fierce secretary. Mannix told them everything. But his story was that though he'd pressurised Catherine to have sex with him, Catherine, the 13-year-old Catherine Mind, had only let him go so far. After revealing the sordid details, as we discussed last week, he declared... Upon his damnation and most extreme punishment of his body, he never knew her carnally. With Deerham, the interrogators had to be careful. After all, he was part of Catherine's household. They did not want her to smell a rat or indeed any other kind of rodent. So they put it out that they were investigating charges of piracy against Deerham's time in Ireland. After the interview, any slightly remaining hope that it maybe wasn't so bad was all gone. Deerham also confessed everything. He hath had carnal knowledge with the queen lying in her bed by her, in his doublet and hosen divers times, and six or seven times in naked bed with her. The interrogators managed to pull in eight or nine others before midnight of the 5th of November, including Catherine Tilney and two former maids, Margaret Bennett and Annis Restwold. Bennett was very specific indeed. Amongst many things Catherine had said to her was this. A woman might meddle with a man and yet conceive no child unless she would herself. Basically, everyone they spoke to confirmed the story. Catherine, meanwhile, continued in blissful ignorance. On the 5th of November still then, the councillors met with their king. They told him what they knew. The king sat in silence while the truth came out. And then his four councillors waited. His heart was so pierced with pensiveness that long it was before his majesty could speak and utter the sorrow of his heart to us. 
and when he did utter the sorrow of his heart, the king wept openly and freely. Nonetheless, now the mill wheel had been pushed and it began to roll, to thunder down the hill, to crush all in its path. Riders left Hampton Court in the dead of night by midnight of the 5th, calling the Dukes of Norfolk and Suffolk to attend the king in London. On the 6th of November, the king let it be known publicly that he was going to do a little hunting at a lodge nearby Hampton Court, and that night he left Hampton Court. But he left not for hunting, but for Whitehall, Westminster. Over the next few days, secrecy was to be fully maintained. But rumours began to circulate. Council met constantly at odd times of night. Clerics, lawyers had been seen coming into the council, rather like when Anne of Cleves was dropped. The French ambassador, Mariac, reported that councillors were coming out of council looking very troubled, especially Norfolk, who is esteemed very resolute, not easily moved to show by his face what his heart conceives. Bits of news began to filter back to Catherine in her rooms at Hampton Court. She knew that Derham had been questioned and taken into custody. The news that the king had turned up in London, rather than hunting, that had come back. And there were all these comings and goings that were reported too. Catherine's heart must have been like lead. And again, Mariac reported. She has taken no kind of pastime but kept in her chambers. Before she did nothing but dance and rejoice. Now when the musicians come, they are told there is no more time to dance. No more time to dance. Back at Norfolk House in Lambeth, a mist of dread was slowly curling itself around the ankles of the Dowager Duchess and the Countess of Bridgewater. The Dowager Duchess tried to get Norfolk to visit, but he refused to come. She went to Derham's coffers of papers, still held in her house. She broke the coffer open and apparently sent all the papers to Norfolk, though who knows how many she burned first. However, one thing comforted her. She knew that while Catherine's youthful history and older lies would see her condemned and stripped of her titles and position and humiliated, it did not mean death. Adultery by the Queen was treason because it messed up the succession, but not these premarital affairs. The Dowager Duchess knew nothing of Culpepper, nor did the Council. No one knew anything about Culpepper. As long as it stayed that way, Catherine's life and those around her were safe. On the 7th of November then, Catherine was finally summoned from her chambers to meet a heavy-hitting delegation from Whitehall led by the Archbishop Cranmer. She must have been thinking about the approach she would take and she decided on attack, though her first feelings on being confronted might well just have been, partly at least, relief. No mention of Culpepper. Her life was safe. And so Catherine went for queenly. She just denied everything. Cranmer believed... Not one word of it. He came back on his own to see her again. This time he found Catherine nearly hysterical, in a storm of panic. She was incapable of saying anything, so he left and returned again, but still Catherine raged and panicked. Cranmer would later write to Henry, Grace, I found her in such lamentation and heaviness as I never saw no creature, so that it would have pitied any man's heart in the world to have looked upon her, and in that vehement rage she continued. From my departure from her unto my return again, and then I found her, as I do suppose, far interred towards a frenzy. Eventually, Cranmer managed to talk her round. What seems to have swung it was the offer from Henry that if she confessed fully, she would be spared. After all, it was not treason yet. And so finally she confessed everything. 
She wrote a few letters. The final version was probably produced with the help of Cranmer, and the difference between the versions is important, firstly, because as we discussed in the previous episode, one of them suggested that Catherine had been forced, tricked, raped and the victim of abuse. And indeed the final version included the heart-rending lines, I most humbly beseech you to consider the subtle persuasions of young men and the ignorance and frailness of young women. The previous confession had none of that, and was much longer, involved and disorganised. Plus, it also included the stunningly daft line. Deerham then asked me if I should be married to Mr Culpepper, for so he had heard reported. Then I made answer, What should you trouble me therewith? For you know I will not have you. And if you heard such report, you heard more than I do know. Why would you say that? Why was she daft enough to mention Culpepper out of the blue like that? Cranmer was an academic. He knew the weak points of an argument when he saw them, and there were at least two here. If this all had happened with Deerham, then why on earth had she employed him in her household? And why had she mentioned Culpepper in that previous letter? For the time being, though, counsel on the 11th of November was largely satisfied. But they wanted to check out one thing. Deerham and his re-employment. Had Deerham and Catherine started having sex again after the marriage? Surely she would not have been daft enough to have brought him back unless she was still involved with him. While this was going on, Catherine was moved to the old nunnery at Sion, where incidentally all the nuns had left to pursue their Catholic monasticism abroad in peace. Catherine was denuded of pearls and jewels, but treated like a queen. Maybe she was going to be okay. But she was still in a panic. Every day she demanded of Jane Rochford whether she'd heard anything about Culpepper. The two swore they would say nothing, absolutely nothing, no matter how hard they were pressured. And they waited. On the 12th of November, the error of judgment made by the Dowager Duchess, Countess of Bridgewater and Catherine, finally unfolded. Deerham was interrogated again. Had he resumed his relationship? Mariak heard what happened. Deerham, to show his innocence since the marriage, said that Culpepper had succeeded him in the Queen's affections. The very same day, a delegation appeared at Zion to see the Queen, and Deerham's accusation was laid before her. This time Catherine didn't attempt to deny the truth, but to shift the blame to Jane Rochford. She painted a picture of youthful innocence that the experienced Rochford had told her that men of the court must look on the Queen and she must allow it. Yet must you give men leave to look, for they will look upon you. She said that some gifts had been exchanged, but nothing untoward. When Rochford was interrogated, she, of course, had it all the other way round. Now it was all the Queen's insistence. And given that the Queen had changed her story three times now, Catherine's credibility was blown. Culpepper was arrested on the 13th, and he gave a detailed and probably honest account of all the dealings between him and Catherine. He clearly was not tortured, but seems to have been totally open anyway. He revealed all the sneaking it's about, all the subterfuge, all the shared passion and love. He also confirmed they'd not made love physically, but was honest enough to add, he intended and meant to do ill with the Queen, and that likewise the Queen so minded with him. Mercy was now off the table. The only question was how many would be caught up in the fallout, and how they'd die. Rochford was sent to the Tower. Three days later she had a complete mental breakdown and seems to have gone completely mad, quite probably because the mad could not be executed under law. So she was moved to Lord Russell's house and Henry sent his own very best physicians to help her. He wasn't being kind. He wanted to make sure she didn't cheat the death that, in his view, she richly deserved. 
For the rest of November, the net was cast wide, searching for evidence of the Queen's actions since marriage. The King's mood swung from self-pity to fury. His love turned to hatred. He once cried for his horse and a sword so he could kill her himself. Meanwhile, all detail was being uncovered, with people like Catherine Tilney, Margaret Morton among the interrogated. The song remained the same, but there was a constant stream of counsellors going back to interrogate poor old Catherine. Mariac reported, She thought that after her free confessions, they would not inquire further, but finding the contrary, refuses to drink or eat, and weeps and cries like a madwoman, so that they must take away things by which she might hasten her death. As I may have mentioned, unlike Europe, torture was not an official part of the English judicial process, but here Henry made an exception. Both Deerham and his friend Robert Damport were very probably tortured. Tradition has it that Damport had his teeth pulled out until he admitted knowing that his friend Deerham had once slept with Catherine. Finally, on the 1st of December, Deerham, Mannox and Culpepper were all tried at the Guildhall and found guilty. It's a little difficult to know for what exactly, probably treason for Deerham in not telling the king about the Catherine before the marriage, and Culpepper for what he planned to do. So more than a little dicey. Both begged to be beheaded rather than suffer the full evisceration experience, and Culpepper's request was granted due to his noble position. Deerham's request was not. Mannix. Now Mannix was released, which is quite interesting since it suggests a reasonably manageable boundary to Henry's hurt rage. Attention now turned not to Catherine again, but to the Howards. For most of December, the Howards were hauled in front of the interrogators. How much had they been part of the plot? The Dowager Duchess denied everything, denied ever having known how far things had gone. The council described her as old and testy. They got no change out of her. The same applied to the Countess of Bridgewater. This was a woman who'd raised rebellion in Wales, may have taken part in the Pilgrimage of Grace forced divorce on her second husband she was also having none of it she showeth herself to be her mother's daughter that is one that will by no means confess anything that may touch her nonetheless they both and 12 other howards and members of the howard household were shipped off to the tower and would later be convicted of misprison of treason i.e knowing something was going on and not saying essentially the duke was not one of them though he wrote a grovelling note to the king saying he'd know nothing and distancing himself from the appalling behaviour of his mother and sister. Sir Henry let him off. Which brings us to Catherine and Jane Rochford. They would have to wait until Parliament convened in January. Jane was still mad, or pretending to be mad, though there's no record of her putting her knickers on her head, shoving pencils up her nostrils and saying wibble. But at Sion, Catherine seems to have either made her peace, or was living on some kind of false hope, probably a bit of both, each agonised day. Chapuis wrote that she was making good cheer, fatter and handsomer than before, taking great care of her person, well-dressed and much adorned, more imperious and commanding, and more difficult to please than ever she was when living with her husband. When Parliament convened, it showed some scruples. A person such as a queen should not be attainted by Act of Parliament without the offer of trial. And so, Cranmer led another delegation to Sion to make the offer of a trial, but Catherine refused, and also begged that none of her kindred and family share her fate if she was to be executed. She threw herself on the king's mercy, maybe reckoning that was her only chance. But the king had no mercy to give. Parliament passed the act of attainder. By the 29th of January, Henry was entertaining again, demonstrating his ability to move on, or at least 
showed public indifference. At Sion, Catherine's fate relentlessly approached. On the 7th of February, her servants were dismissed and Sion was cold and quiet around her. On the 10th, she dressed in a plain black velvet gown and waited for the small covered boat to take her to the Tower of London. Jane Rochford had already been taken to the Tower. She persisted in her madness until she was told she could die anyway and then she'd magically recovered. Back at Sion, as the councillors approached to take her away, Catherine panicked one more time and would not go. They begged and they pleaded with her, but she would not go. So in the end, she was manhandled, struggling furiously into the waiting boat and hence to the tower. Once in the tower, though, Catherine was determined then to concentrate on dying well. She had a block brought and spent hours laying her head on it. The following morning at seven o'clock, the council came to take her to die. She'd wanted a secret execution, which she was denied, but Tower Green was at least restricted access, so she was not surrounded by the baying mob as Cromwell had been. Jane Rochford was brought out after her execution was done, for once queenly and expert. There's only one eyewitness, so Mariette's account of a weak and confused Catherine is probably a porcupine, as is the idea that her dying words were, I die a queen, but would rather die the wife of Culpepper. The one eyewitness who wrote said, I saw the queen and the Lady Rochford suffer within the tower, the day following whose souls I doubt not be with God, for they made the most godly and Christian end that was ever heard tell of since the world's creation, uttering their lively faith in the blood of Christ only and with goodly words and steadfast countenances. Once Henry had vented his rage on the four of them, Durham, Culpepper, Catherine and Jane, his fury was done, sated, satisfied, and he honoured Catherine's wish that her family be excused. They were all of them pardoned, most of them by May 1542. Catherine's story is surely something of a tragedy, whether you choose to emphasise her youth and exploitation at the hands of men or her wild and incautious passion, and whether you choose to emphasise her mistakes, willfulness or the talent she had begun to show as a queen. It's a story which brings across the suffocating horror of life at court and the story of one person at least who failed to survive it. So that's all folks, as Bugs would have it. Don't forget to hear the version of Catherine Howard's story told in the presence of a cat. Go to Twitter and to at history underscore with underscore cats, history, H-S-T-R-Y. So that is again at history underscore with underscore cats. And the address is on my website. Also, no episode next week as it happens until we have back to Henry and his Privy Council and the fight to death for the religious soul of England. Good luck, everyone, and have a great fortnight. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.